morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Good, good. All right, well, hey, if you are uh, new here today, we're continuing our series that we've been going through for, for the past couple months on the Gospel of Mark entitled Journey with Jesus. We're going to be looking at Mark 6, verses 1 through 30. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 6, 1 through 30. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the center aisle. Feel free to ask someone to hand you one of those. And the verses will be on the screen as well. Uh, here's the deal. We have uh, a lot of ground to cover this morning. I could preach three different sermons uh, out of this text. So we're going to kind of uh, journey through this uh, kind of at a high altitude and not necessarily at a low altitude, if that makes sense to you. Uh, anyways, but the theme of our text today is the cost of discipleship, that as we've been reading through Mark, we're not just looking at the life of Christ, but also the journey that Jesus invites us to follow him on. And that, as we're about to discover, is a costly journey. And uh, I was recently reading a, uh, a blog post on the internet, because that's where blog posts are found on the internet, in case you didn't know that. And uh, what I found with that blog post was this kind of idea of cheap grace. I'm seeing that from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're about to read something that he said about that. And in the blog post, it was saying essentially this, is that do nothing. You are a Christian, and nothing is required of you. Therefore, do not do anything. Just rest in your identity, your indicativeness. And then it said in this blog post that all of the imperatives in Scripture are indicatives. And what that means is the indicative is basically a statement of being. This is who I am. It's a who I am statement. And the imperatives are a command. This is what I do. And uh, where this article, I think, went too far was that it said now all of the imperatives, all the commands of our Savior, Jesus Christ, are actually indicatives. It's who we are. And that word, they're kind of optional. You know, no, no obedience required type of thing. Uh, when in fact... You can't throw out the imperatives with the indicative. You need to switch the order. That's what this article missed, is that the order is this. Oftentimes, since we're a bunch of legalists, myself being the foremost, is we think uh, imperative, this is what I do. Therefore, this is the indicative, who I am. Imperative, I perform really, really well. I follow all these rules. Therefore, I'm a child of God, and God's pleased with me, right? But the Christian life, what Christ has come to do, the good news of the gospel, is that now he has declared over us a new identity, so that reverses, so now we are, the indicative comes first. This is who I am, because of, what, because of who Christ is and what he's done on my behalf. I'm a child of God. Nothing can separate me from his love, right? Because I'm in Christ. That's my union with Christ, the indicative. And out of the indicative flows the imperative. I'm a son of the living God. I'm a daughter of the living God. I want to please my Father and obey him. Therefore, this is what I do because of who I am. And, and, and the, the article that I was reading, uh, I, I, went, I think it just went way, way too far, but I think it's a common theme. And the, the scary part about it is it's very believable. It's very believable. And we, we've fallen into this trap. Therefore, it's basically saying, do whatever you want, live however you want, live no differently because, hey, it's all grace, baby. It's all grace. But here's the deal. It was a costly grace. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. If you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, I don't have time to do justice to it. Look it up. This guy, he wrote a book uh, called The Cost of Discipleship. He didn't write that, updating his blog in Starbucks, you know, uh, if, you, if you catch my drift. He gave his life for following Christ uh, under, under Hitler. He was safe and secure in America. He went back to Germany. He felt like God was calling him back to Germany, uh, was associated with an assassination plot, and ended up getting executed uh, for his faith. It was his Christian conviction that drove him. And this is what he says. This guy's the real deal. Buy the book, read it. It's phenomenal. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Listen, listen. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell everything that he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows Jesus. Such grace is costly. Listen to this. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace, it's grace because of who it calls us to follow. It calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it's going to cost us our life because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. Are you guys tracking with this? This line of thought? It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And listen, I love this line. What has cost God much? 
cannot be cheap for us. And he continues later on, fast forwarding in his book, he says this, talking about cheap grace. The Christian life comes to me nothing more than living in the world and as the world and being no different from the world. In fact, in being prohibited, listen, in being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. No obedience required, right? Where we have grace. And he continues. The upshot, it, the upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on a Sunday morning, go to church, and be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Jesus Christ for cheap grace. The bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. Can you believe that? That last line crushed me. He says this essentially. I no longer need to follow Jesus for cheap grace has freed me from that. And see, church, my hope this morning is that we, myself especially, would repent of loving cheap grace. Listen, of wanting the blood-bought grace of Jesus Christ, but not following Jesus, right? Of saying to our Savior, who gave his life for us, endured the wrath we should have endured on the cross so that we could be spared from that and be reconciled to God, instead of wanting just all the free stuff he gives us, of actually uh, letting him come and speak into our lives, right? And so I hope this morning is that we would repent and we turn from just saying, hey, give me all the free stuff, give me this grace, uh, but I don't want Jesus. I'm not gonna follow Jesus. That's not how this works, church. Christ has called us, uh, the beauty of the gospel is, yes, is that we get grace, unmerited favor for all of eternity from God. Nothing we can do, our obedience can't change that. But, but the beauty of the gospel, the end of the gospel, is that we get Jesus, is that we get to follow him, and it's a cost of grace. So what has cost God much may not be cheap to us. And that's what we're going to be looking at in each of these texts that we, we're going to kind of fly through, journey through this morning, is that there, we see that there's a cost to following Jesus, that it costs, uh, 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 in each text we see that there's a cost here of being obedient to God. Um, so let's pray, and we'll dive in here. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. It was not required of you to send your only beloved son to ransom and redeem a rebellious and sinful person like myself. It was not required. But yet you, uh, Jesus, your word says that, that, that you went outside of the walls and bared our reproach and shame on the cross so that we could be set free, so that we could experience grace. And shame on us, Heavenly Father, we repent, we ask for your forgiveness, and we confess shame on us when we take that for granted. We take that lightly and we say audacious things like we can do whatever we want. That doesn't honor you. We're here today because we want to magnify uh, your son, Jesus, today. So Spirit, would you come? Uh, would you do what we're incapable of doing and, and, and grant us repentance here this morning? Uh, uh, Spirit, come and, and stir our affections for your son. Would you change lives today? Uh, would you increase? Would you uh, increase up here? And would I decrease? And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, church. Hey, we're going to dive right in. Uh, first uh, text we see uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning is Mark verses 1 through 6. And we see that Jesus is actually rejected at Nazareth. Here we go. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about uh, among the villages teaching. So quick recap here of what's going on in the text is Jesus is TDY, if you will, in Capernaum for a little bit. He, he's, up, he's, he's up doing his great Galilean ministry. And now he's taking a, a little R&R. A little &R. He's going back to his hometown, which is 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And he's bringing his, his new crew with him, the disciples, and they're going to his hometown, Nazareth. But here's the situation in uh, the hometown of Jesus. Uh, like any small town, everyone's talking. Everyone's talking, right? And uh, if you were from a small town, you know how quickly word spreads. And uh, Nazareth, 
scholars, uh, scholars believe was like maybe, maybe 200 people total. Jesus told them that was like a no-name town uh, with no-name people, uh, so much so that uh, Nathaniel and John, uh, John's account says uh, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Who's, who's sort of Nazareth? right? That's, that's Christ's hometown. So Jesus is returning there, but the situation that he's coming back to, he's coming back to a different Nazareth. And everyone's talking about this Jesus, right? Word's getting around. Hey, you've been following Jesus on Facebook lately? Have you, been, have you seen what he's posting? He's taking selfies with like tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's posted some really uh, crazy things. He's got this new crew that he's rolling with called the 12 Disciples, all this stuff. What, what's he doing, right? And what we see is that actually the family Jesus' brothers and sisters and parents, they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed uh, of what Jesus was doing. Like, whoa, 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 what happened? What, what, is, what is going on? Uh, what, what, is, what has happened in his life? And this is what it says in Mark 3, 20 through 21, a couple chapters before our text today. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard of it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. They were completely embarrassed by what Jesus was saying. And their reputation, their name was getting tarnished in their community, right? Because of what Jesus was, was claiming. They're saying he was out of his mind. And, and C.S. Lewis makes a beautiful argument that there's three options Christ gave us about who he is, his identity. He's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. And what's cool here is we see that uh, it was a family of Jesus who actually, uh, before his resurrection, thought he was crazy. And then after, we see his brothers giving their lives uh, for, for the sake of Christ. And um, lunatic liar Lord and, and his family before his death and resurrection chose the first option. Uh, our brother has lost his mind and we need to go and they literally tried to seize him like, like ropes and I don't, I don't know, maybe a net and be like, you know, okay, this is embarrassing. Let's, 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 let's you know, contain you for a little bit, control you because word has gotten out that, that you've lost your mind. So Jesus comes back to his hometown. That's kind of the that's kind of what's going on in Nazareth. Word spreading and all this stuff. We're getting, about, about, getting around about Jesus. And Jesus comes back, not just with himself, but with 12 disciples, two new guys, two new arrivals to a small town. Everyone's looking at him up now and saying, what are these people doing in, in our small town? And where, where does Jesus go? He goes to one place that his parents probably were like, please don't go to the synagogue. Whatever you do, just come home. We'll keep you here. Just please don't go to the synagogue. Because synagogue was the epicenter of community life, but it was also the epicenter of probably of community gossip as well, as most religious communities are. Uh, and uh, sarcasm, sorry. Uh, and, uh, and what does he do? He, mar- he, he goes on the Sabbath, it says here, and he goes straight to the pulpit. And he opens up the Old Testament scroll. And he reads some Old Testament prophecies. And he has the audacity to call dibs on uh, the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. So he's up there, he's preaching. He's, preaching, he's, he's bringing the noise. Nobody could preach with the authority. Like Jesus has, says that the Nazarenes, the, the townies there in the synagogue were astonished at what he was saying. But he's doing the, he's doing the audacious. He's saying, uh, essentially, Mark 1.15, the gospel he's preaching is the time is fulfilled. The time, the moment you've all been waiting for of the coming Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord. It's here. It's now. You're looking at him. I am the Messiah. Two, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because I'm the king of the kingdom of God. You're in the presence of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent Turn, turn towards me and trust in me. That's what he's saying to, to people who probably changed his diapers growing up in Nazareth. So I, uh, I live in Vienna. Uh, well, I live in my grandmother's basement in Vienna. And, uh, and she's been there for, I don't even know how long, uh, basement apartment. You add apartment because it sounds cooler, I guess. But anyway, so across the street, across the street, there's some people who have lived there just as long as my grandmother has. And we've gotten to know our neighbors a bunch, Jen and I have. And whenever I see one neighbor in particular, who's probably twice as old as me, he, uh, he always calls me Nikki. I don't like to be called Nikki. <laughs> but here's the deal. A prophet has no honor in his hometown, right? Here's the deal. This neighbor knew me when I was in diapers, summer barbecues or whatever. They like, hey, hey, Nikki, what's up? And I'm like, oh, should I tell him? Like, hey, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not in diapers anymore, bro. <laughs> you don't need to call me, call me. So Jesus coming back to his hometown and saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the coming king that you've all been waiting for through the line of David to, to set Israel free. And uh, they're astonished. It says the response of the, uh, the locals there, the Nazarenes, is one, they're blown away. Like he could bring, he could bring the noise, right? Like he's, they're, they're saying he was astonished at what he's teaching. But when you look at the smugness and the arrogance of their response, look at this with me, verses two through three. They say, where did, they don't call him Jesus. Where did this man get these things? 
And then they say, where is the wisdom? What is this wisdom that was given to him? They're saying, hey, Jesus, that was a great sermon, bro. No chance you came up with that on your own. No chance. Who did you steal that from? What's the wisdom that, that was given to you, right? We see the complete lack of respect uh, or, or, or even idea that he could come up with this. So then, then it says, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is, is not this the carpenter? They're calling out his hand. So growing up, my dad uh, uh, was, was a, a man's man, handyman, worked around the house, was a D.C. police officer for about 30 years, and he always say, hey, let me see your hands. So you can tell, you can tell a lot by a man when you shake his hand. So he said, he said, do you have city boy hands? He said, let me see those hands. Do you have city boy? And then basically saying, do you have calluses? And so as a little kid, I'm, I'm going into the garage getting sandpaper and rubbing them together to make my dad, are you proud, Pop? You know, I got... And, uh, and so Jesus here, it says in the Greek, he was, tect- he was a tecton. He was, he was actually a worker. He was a tradesman. It's not a carpenter, someone who works with his hands. So he's a stonemason, a carpenter, uh, uh, and, and worked with his hands. And what they're saying here is, okay, how can those hands do what Jesus is doing? Like, Jesus doesn't have rabbi hands. He's got carpenter hands, right? He's a carpenter. You can't pull a Michael Jordan, right, and go from basketball to baseball, Jesus. You can't go from carpenter to, to religious leader. That's not how it works, okay? You stay in your lane. How can those hands do this mighty work? Jesus just redid my kitchen and bath, and now he's going to tell me that, that you know, he's, he's the coming Messiah. That's not how this works, Jesus. How can those hands do these mighty things, healing people? And then it gets personal. And then it gets personal. Look at the, look at, you, you kind of see the animosity, the, the hostility, the pride of how dare this Jesus say this to, to us. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. In that culture, you never called someone the son of their mother. You called them the son of their father, right? And we still do that we still today. It's a patronymic, right? My, my Russian name would be Nicholas Nikolaevich Mudritsov. Nick, son of Nick. My dad's name's Nick. Mudrizel, right? And what uh, most scholars suggest here is, is for sure it's an insult where scholars disagree is the, the variation of the insult. Is, is, is they're calling into question uh, uh, Mary's fidelity, if you will, if you catch my drift, right? Saying that Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary, and the verdict's still out on, you know, Mary's reputation and how Jesus all came about. So they're, they're, they're talking about his mama, right? And it's, just, it's getting personal. And that's what, we, that's what we see here. And it says in the Greek that they were offended. And, the, and, and that word in the Greek is scandalized. That's where we get, they were, they were kind of scandalized. They were put off. They were repulsed by what they were saying. It was offensive to them. They're saying, saying this Jesus is coming. And sure, yeah, how can, he's, he's preaching, he's proclaiming uh, this, this awesome message. We're astonished at how he can do it. He's performing the work of the coming of the kingdom. He's healing people. Uh, people. This, is, this is awesome. But how is this Jesus, who we know, uh, the savior of the world? The coming Messiah coming from Nazareth, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, a bastard child from Nazareth, the town carpenter, that's who, that's who uh, is the savior of the world. Give me a break, Jesus. You, you've lost your mind. Get out of here. You've completely lost your mind. And uh, Jesus says a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's what Jesus' response to them uh, was. And he said a prophet uh, has no honor in his hometown. But what, what we see here too in this text is that Jesus did and could not do a mighty work amongst those people. And this is what's kind of crazy. As we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, what we see is absence of faith, absence of God showing up in mighty ways, Christ doing mighty work, presence of faith, presence of Jesus Christ showing up in mighty ways. Those, those are just the facts, right? Those are just the facts. And so these people push Jesus out of their hometown, and they are missing out. Imagine what that could have looked. We just in Mark five one through twenty, the region of the Gerasenes uh, cast Jesus out of their town, saying, "We do not want you." All right, there was a cost for someone's redemption. Two thousand pigs, and saying, "We don't want to pay the cost. Leave Jesus." And imagine what they missed out on if Jesus stayed there. Philip and 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 to their to their uh, loss, they're pushing Jesus out and says that Jesus refused to do a money work there. And so what was the cost? Jesus was being obedient to the Father. He's going back home. He's trying to honor his family. He's going back to his hometown. What was the cost that Christ paid to be obedient to his Father? He lost his hometown. Jesus lost his friends. Jesus lost his family. Jesus uh, lost his hometown, right? And some of you have the same story. When you came to faith in Christ, I mean, I I did youth ministry for a while. There was a kid who was kicked out of his house. 
Because he converted, con- converted from a certain religious background to Christianity, and his family's like, this is embarrassing. You're shaming our name. Get out of our house. We want nothing to do with you anymore. That's the cost that comes with following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was mocked, he was insulted, and he was shamed in church. Listen, if this is how our Savior was treated, why does it surprise us when, when, we, when we're insulted, when people are offended by us and, and hate us, right? That's the one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it, hated, it has hated me well before it's hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See, here's the danger of cheap grace. Here's the danger of cheap grace is we want it so badly to be of the world because it's easy and want everyone to like us and love us. So therefore, if we just look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, and we draw no lines in the sand when it comes to our faith, then therefore there's no cost to be paid. But if we have been redeemed and ransomed into the kingdom of God and out of the kingdom of this world, then we're not going to look like and live like this world. We're going to start acting and thinking and believing different things. Therefore, therefore, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christian, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to understand that our faith is a costly faith. That, that we have to be willing to take a hit for our Savior and say, come what may, I'm following Jesus. This is who I am. This is, this is uh, who I am, and therefore this is what I do. I follow in the footsteps of my Savior, and those footsteps are persecuted uh, footsteps. Those are footsteps sometimes of, of suffering and, and footsteps of great cost. I'm going to follow him at risk to my reputation, and as we're going to see, risk to potentially our, our, my future safety on this side of eternity. Next thing we see is that Jesus sends out the disciples, verses 7 through 13. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with, men, with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so what we see here is Jesus has left Nazareth and he rallies his troops, his, his disciples, if you will, and he commissions them for a battle in a way. And, and here's the deal. These disciples, all the way up until Mark chapter 6, I don't know if they're ready, right? Like we would read certain encounters and, and a lot of times they're presented in not the most flattering ways. They're often doubting and fearful and kind of more of a nuisance to Jesus than a help to him. And this is who Jesus now is commissioning to go out in his authority and do the work that Jesus has uh, called them to do. So Jesus rallies the troops and he commissions them for battle. Well, what's the battle? Kingdom of God advancement is now their mission. You guys catch that? It's not their kingdom. They're, They're going and marching forward to advance the kingdom of God. And I got news for us, that too is our mission. That's why we're here. We're, we're here on this earth is kingdom advancement. And uh, what we see here is uh, Jesus gave them specific battle plan and marching orders, if you will. It says he, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. So the first thing we see here is they were sent out two by two. Why is that? Uh, one of the reasons is in Old Testament law, in that culture, uh, uh, the law required that you needed two witnesses to verify a matter, that they were eyewitnesses. They weren't testifying to something they hadn't seen or heard with their own eyes, right? So, so they, had, they had seen enough to go out and, and share the gospel. Right? There's I've seen Jesus, and they're just testifying. They're witnesses to what they've seen. And two, the reason they're getting sent out two by two is, listen, Jesus found it more effective to send out uh, six teams of two rather than 12 teams of one, okay? Now, if you're um, in the 21st century in America, you're thinking, Jesus, no, 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 man. You send out 12 teams of one, and they'll figure it out. That's more effective. Dude, more, more territory, more geography. Let's go. Jesus thought it more effective to send them out uh, six teams of two. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Why is that? And, and well, for obviously for safety and, and for support, right? Like, like th- this is an easy principle we pull out of this. Is doing kingdom advancement work? Listen, church, we need each other. Uh, there are no lone wolves in Christianity. 
We need each other. This, this last week in the office, I ran into uh, uh, Joseph Workman. And uh, this, was a, this was a wild week for my family, a really busy week, kind of some crazy stuff going on. And uh, right before he was walking out of the office, he says, hey, man, I just want to let you know that my family was praying for you this morning. And, dude, I, have no, I, I stopped him in his track and said, hey, 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 wait, wait, what were you doing? I said, like, you're praying for me? Did the Lord prompt you? To pray? Like, I need to know. Did the Lord prompt you? Because I need prayer, dude. I was like, I need prayer, right? And that, man, that fired me up. I was like, how cool is that, man? Got a brother in ours, a brother in Christ, praying for another brother in Christ, encouraging us, even without us knowing it. And my challenge is, hey, man, are we, are we doing that here at the trans? Are we, are we coming alongside one another? Are we encouraging one another? We need each other. The disciples needed a brother in Christ to go and advance. We, we need that church. That's why we do community together, because community is what we are, right? So we emphasize community groups and getting plugged in is because we need each other. And if we're going to do a kingdom advancement work, here's the deal. It's really easy to be a lone wolf and be isolated as long as you're not doing kingdom work. If you're doing kingdom work, and striving and got strength to advance the kingdom of God, you realize, I can't do this alone. I need, I need my brothers, I need my sisters in Christ to help. We need to help each other. And that's what we see here. And two, we see that they were sent out in Christ's authority. He authorized and appointed the 12 disciples as his representatives and ambassadors. They were to be an extension of Jesus Christ so that wherever those disciples went, their presence was to be synonymous in a way with the presence of Jesus Christ. It was his authority, his kingdom, his mission. Disciples didn't go wearing shirts with big old name tags saying, hey, come follow Team Peter, you know, or, or Team, no, no, it was, hey, we're, we're, we're here of ambassadors of another kingdom and, and of a king. And we've come on behalf of him and with his authority. And what a, what a crazy privilege Jesus gave the 12 apostles, right? Like, I don't know about you, but um, uh, my parents, so growing up, I don't know when you guys started to drive, but I, uh, by God's grace, it was awesome. We, uh, we had a, a, a cabin with some dirt roads or whatever, and my dad let me drive like way before I was, I was 15. And there came a day where, you know, we're driving these country roads. I was always in the shotgun seat and all this stuff and be like, man, I wonder when I'm going to get the keys to the car. When is this going to happen? Yeah, this is awesome. There came a day where we said, all right, son, here are the keys your turn to drive. And I was like, what? This is a mess respons- responsibility, right? I'm not, I'm not old enough. I'm not equipped. No, no, here you go. I'm riding shotgun with you. Like my pops didn't hand me the keys and say, peace, right? He's still in the car with me, right? And that's the beauty of the Great Commission. He says, lo, behold, I go with you, right? Wherever you are. But, but look at that. Look how beautiful that is. The, the, the privilege we have, church, of being ambassadors to our Savior. 2 Corinthians uh, 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The kingdom advances. Listen, Jesus is passing the keys of kingdom advancement to the disciples, to the apostles, which is being passed down to us, right? A great responsibility, an ambassador of our King Jesus. Great responsibility. It's not about us. It's all about his kingdom, his message, message, mission and message. And we are here, church, our lives are to always continually point back to and reflect another. And that's the work. What the beautiful thing too here is that we see is that Jesus commissioned them to do the very work that he was already doing. What we see here is that they were proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and they were displaying it through the kingdom of God breaking in, setting the captive free from demonic oppression and healing those who were sick. That's the exact thing we've seen Jesus do. The last six chapters, how awesome is it that he commissioned the disciples to do the very work that he was doing? Set them out two by two. But what I want to hone in on here before we transition to our next text is the packing list, right? The packing list that Jesus gave the 12 disciples. He essentially said, I want you to, to go out to scatter in teams of two, bring a staff, bring some sandals, okay? And one pair of clothes. That's it. And the reason why one thing is what we see here is the instructions that Jesus gives the 12 are almost identical to the belongings that God instructs the Israelites to take on their flight from Egypt, right? Look at Exodus 12, 11. In this manner, you shall eat it with your, uh, this is right before the Exodus, the Passover meal. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so what we see here is that the mission of the 12 disciples announces something as foundational and revelatory as the exodus from Egypt. And so what we see is that the disciples had to have been free from encumbrances, as were the Israelites, to serve their God in this new venture, to serve God in this new venture. And so what we see here is a sense of urgency. He's entrusting the disciples a mission 
It's like your life at this moment has forever changed. This is now the reason you exist, uh, Peter, James, and John, and everyone. This is the reason you exist is for kingdom advancement. There needs to be a sense of urgency. You are citizens of a new kingdom. This world is not your home anymore. And so, uh, so take with you only the stuff that is mission critical. No fluff, nothing unnecessary. Uh, and when I graduated from college, I was a Russian studies major. And so in 2010, me and my buddy, we did a backpacking trip in, uh, the, uh, into, into Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and, and saw some other places. And when we went there, listen, when I, when I, was, when I was backpacking there for a couple weeks in Russia, I didn't stuff an Xbox and a flat screen TV in my carry-on luggage. Are you, are you tracking with me? I didn't go there, land in Moscow, make it to the hostel, and set up a TV and my Xbox when I could have stayed in Fairfax and played Xbox with a dude from Moscow, right? Why go to Moscow when you can just play, uh, uh, you know, whatever? And so, three, why was that? Because we were on a mission. We were there for what? A brief time. And there were there's work to be done. There were places to go, things we needed to accomplish uh, day in and day out. We didn't want to waste time. We didn't want to get distracted from the reason we paid all that money to go there. And in the same way, church, we realize we're just passing through. Like, like us being in Christ means we're passing through. We're citizens of a new kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom. This world is not our home. We're passing through. What is slowing us down, right? What are those things today, church, I want to challenge us. What are those things that are distracting us from the mission that God has entrusted to us? What are those things not distracting us, but maybe completely derailing us, right? And they could be good things, right? I have, I have nothing against video games, but if we're playing video games for, you know, eight hours a day and advancing a virtual meaningless kingdom, maybe we can cut back on that and actually do some kingdom work. See, see, listen, the odds, Christian, for you to follow Christ in this world are stacked completely against you, completely against you. This world continually screams at you, do not take a cost, do what is convenient, do what is comfortable, right? Uh, uh, yes, watch that Netflix series, 12 episodes in a row, and then the next series, uh, eat this food, uh, save it for retirement so you can move to the beach and, and get away from, it, from, from all of humanity and society. The world is constantly pressing that against you so much so that on a Monday morning of this week, I'm walking my daughter early in the morning to a park. I live in Vienna, and they're building like a $2 million house across from the park, and I'm looking at this thing. It's got five stories. The master bedroom is the very top, and it's surrounded by a deck, and I'm literally, I'm looking at it saying, Wow, right? That is, I, I'm, that's, that's the abundant life, right? That was the lie I was believing that moment. I was, I was literally coveting that house and realizing that I would never step foot in that house, right? No, there's not, if this pastoral ministry thing ever works out, yeah, maybe, but just kidding. Uh, oh, there's no chance I'm ever going to own that house. And all of a sudden, I had this wave of conviction as I was, I literally had to, this is me confessing, I had to pray in that moment, church. I had to pray in that moment. I was like, Lord, John 14, John 14, John 14. Behold, I prepare a mansion for you. You know, like that's what I was, that's what was my, my prayer. But I just felt convicted. I was like, look, Nick, Nick, this world is not your home, bro. And the lie that the world always says is that's the abundant life. Take your eyes off of Christ, right? And all the blessings he's given. You have a beautiful daughter you're walking to the park with. And I'm sitting there looking at a house. Say, Kelsey, go play with your toys. Wow, look at that. Look at that wraparound porch. That's amazing. I love to wake up to a sunrise with a good cup of coffee and, and have a quiet time and thank Jesus for, you know, whatever. <laughs> And, uh, and I was convicted, man. I was convicted because uh, God's been, God has done uh, above and beyond what I have ever deserved by, by, by giving his son for my life, right? And how dare I be an ungrateful child and say, you need to give me that. I want that, God. How dare, how dare I say that, right? But listen, the reason I share that is, is that's the daily message we're bombarded with. That's the daily, don't take a cost. Uh, your best life now. Hedge all your bets now. Save up now. Don't, don't take a hit to your wallet. Don't take a hit to your safety. Don't take a hit to your comfort for the sake of Christ. Don't do that. Just listen, nothing's required of you. Live the life you want to live. Take all of, of Christ's grace, but don't follow in his footsteps in obedience to him. So there's, there should be a sense of urgency. Church, what's distracting us and derailing us from the mission that God has called us to? And lastly, there's a dependency here, right? We see Christ model to us the dependent life and same here with the disciples. He sends them out uh, uh, with literally, he's like, just go. Listen, there's no Airbnb reservation waiting for you, okay? There's no Google Maps 
telling you in the next 200 feet, 200 steps, take a left turn on your, 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 your feet. No, there's no Uber. They're traveling on foot. There's no 911 call that they can call. They're traveling at night, no roof over their head. And, and Jesus is saying, go, go. It's baptism by fire. And, and you better believe in that moment, in that, in that uh, uh, the TDY, if you will, of the disciples, that uh, uh, they learned the dependent life. They had to pray for their, their, a roof over their head. They had to pray for their next meal. They had to pray for, hopefully, a, a, a place to change their, or wash their clothes, right? That was the life. And, that, and, that, and what we see here is Jesus said, uh, and the gospel said, I don't do anything I don't see my father doing. See, the Christian life is not a life of discipline and, and just obeying all the rules. It's a life of dependence on the father, realizing, Lord, I want to be obedient to you, but I need to depend on you. So it's an urgent dependency to advance the kingdom of God, and that is what's modeled to us, church. And what did it cost the disciples? It cost them uh, 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 hunger, cost them homelessness potentially, and cost them hostility. Jesus says, if a town rejects you, uh, shake the dust off your feet. And what's interesting here is they're going, uh, they're going in uh, kind of the Israelite territory. And what Israelites would do when they left a pagan town is they would shake the dust off their feet as a sign of, of uh, God's judgment on that town. And Jesus is saying, listen, if, if, if you go to uh, a town in Israel, right, where you're going, like around the Galilean region and around the villages in Nazareth and all that stuff, when you go there and they reject you, uh, it's a sign of their judgment. So what Jesus is declaring here is, listen, it's not a matter of ethnicity or family background that gets you saved. It's a matter of putting your trust in Jesus, right? It's not just being a, 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 a son of Abraham. It's actually putting your trust in Christ. That, uh, so this was and, and, and kind of Jesus again, the gospel breaking forth out of the bounds of Judaism, going to the ends of the world here with Jesus giving that kind of offensive uh, uh, instruction when they left the town, if that town rejected them. So, so that was the cost. They took a great risk, but look at the gain. Look at the gain they had. And it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That they took a, a risky leap of faith, and the captive was set free. They were casting out. They were seeing God show up in mighty, powerful ways. People's lives being changed for all of eternity, the sick being healed. How cool is that, right? How cool is that? I love that. And the beautiful thing here, what we see in verse 12 is, listen, church, is it says, uh, 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 so they went out. So they went out. At the, the command of Jesus, they went. The feet got created for them to go places with the gospel actually went somewhere. They didn't go to Starbucks and update their blog about how nothing was required of them, okay? They said, this is my king. This is my savior. I bow to him. And if he says, go, I'm going to go. I'm going to depend on him, uh, the strength that he provides to do the work that he's called me to do, right? They went, church. They went. They went. They stepped out of the boat. They stepped out of what was comfortable, what was known to them, into the unknown at the word of Jesus. I love that. And uh, the last thing we see here is, uh, is uh, the great cost that comes with following Jesus that we see that actually following this Jesus can cost you your very life. And I'm going to kind of fly through this last uh, section of the text here as we begin to wrap up. This is uh, the story of John the Baptist getting beheaded. And King Herod heard of it. So word is getting out. Gospel is spreading about Jesus. Uh, and, and for Jesus' name had become known. And some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Okay, let's stop right there. John, uh, uh, Mark just dropped a bomb on people reading this text. John the Baptist is the front runner, was the front runner to Jesus Christ. He, he rallied the whole Judean countryside, hundreds of thousands of people getting ready for the coming of Christ. Front runner loses his head gets beheaded. And so that, that would shock us, the original, leader, uh, the original reader of this text saying, whoa, 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 don't just gloss over that, continuing in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So uh, King Herod, he's, he wasn't necessarily a king, he was a tetrarch, he ruled a fourth of the kingdom that his father Herod ruled. So uh, when his father Herod uh, passed away, the kingdom was split up into to his four sons, and so uh, what we know about King Herod of uh, King Herod Antipas is that he actually appealed to Rome to get his name to be king, but like he got denied that. And so Mark here is calling him king, maybe kind of sarcastically is what some scholars suggest. But uh, here's the situation. 
is that uh, there was, King Herod had like 10 wives, and uh, basically, long story short, I'm not going to go into all of the details, but basically, this Herod being talked of in this text married his niece. Married his niece. 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So that's why John got arrested right there. That's why John got arrested. He, put, he drew a line in the sand and he said, listen, this is not right. You were having your brother's wife, who's also your niece in, in, in a way, and, and this is not right. John didn't have to say that and John could have recanted, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't try to do any exegetical gymnastics and say, did God's word really say Right? He didn't do that. He didn't say, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to hold my tongue because nothing is required of me. He said, no, this is wrong. And it got him arrested. And then continuing in verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Why is that? Because she wanted to kill uh, her conscience in a way. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So we see here's this great feast. Herod, the narcissist that he is, throws himself a birthday party. Everyone's got party hats on. Says, happy birthday, King Herod. He's handing out goodie bags to everybody. And uh, verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So this is just absolute madness. So now he's married to his niece, and now his wife's, who's his niece's daughter, is dancing for him. And, and I won't go into details, but I doubt she's doing the cha-cha-cha. And, uh, and uh, this guy is, 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 is just, he's losing his mind. He's making, he's, he's, he's making promises he can't keep. He's saying, I'll give you all my kingdom. Just ask whatever you want. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's mad. He's, he's lost his mind in regards to, uh, yeah, whatever. And so verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what, shall, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Real quick, repentance isn't sorrow. We can be really sad, but not change anything. Re- sorrow is a part of repentance, right? We should weep over our sins, wrongs we have committed. But there's a turn. There's a change of direction. We don't see that with uh, Herod. I think he tricked himself. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then this is what happens. But because of his oaths, oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an ex- executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. There's just absolute madness. Absolute evil, Right? And here's the deal, church, it didn't have to happen, right? John the Baptist could have uh, said, hey, you know what, actually, uh, it's okay. I, I take back everything I said. I don't know, he stood by his word. He took a hit for following Christ and standing up for what's right. And the front runner to Jesus Christ lost his head. That's what it cost the front runner. He didn't get a book deal. He didn't get a private jet. He didn't get a mega church. He didn't have an awesome blog, right? He lost his life. And uh, what this text that we've just studied today, text screams of, is this text is kind of a transitional point, is what Mark is, is clearly uh, and loudly articulating to, to the reader, is there is a great cost to following this Jesus. You might lose everything, but you gain everything when you get Jesus. It might cost you everything on this side of eternity, but you get Jesus, right? Uh, and, and there's a great cost. That's what is being relayed to us. And in verse 29, we see that when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And I just can't even imagine being one of the disciples uh, coming at great risk to their own safety and grabbing a headless body, a headless body of John the Baptist. Uh, all of a sudden, wow, this just got real, okay? And they're, and, and they're looking at this body. They're bringing it, walking it to, to the grave where they're going to bury it. And they've got to be imagining, man, this could have been me. This could have been me. i got a wife. i got kids at home. I also have a head on my shoulders, Right? This, this could have been me. And what we see here in the text is it doesn't say, and all of them bailed and jumped ship. And all of them said, hey, the cost is too great. I'm not going to continue to follow this Jesus. Hey, you know what? Uh, I'd rather be safe and secure in the boat than rather step out of the boat and risk it all on Jesus. We don't see that here. And actually what we see is it probably strengthened their resolve when they saw their brother in Christ beheaded for making a stand 
for Jesus. And in verse 30, it says, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And I love this, and we're wrapping up with this, is that the picture I get is the disciples go out uh, and, and they all, they all uh, take a huge leap of faith. God shows up in mighty ways and they come back for an after action report for you military people, an AAR with their savior, Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing about being a father is I have a daughter who's two years old and she always gives me an AAR whenever she's hanging out with people. And she's just so excited and she's so bubbly. And she's saying, I went uh, to, the, to the pool uh, with, with Mia, you know, and like her friends. And I'm like, okay, so you went to the pool with, you know, whoever. And then she's like, I was at uh, the, the moo cow and clap, clap, clap. Oh, you went to Chick-fil-A? You saw the cows? I go, whenever I go to Chick-fil-A, I clap too because I'm so excited. And she's just, she's just beaming right? She's just so happy to share uh, all the things she's doing with her father. I want to encourage us, church, that there's coming a point in our life when we're going to meet our father face-to-face, our Savior, Christ face-to-face. And my hope is with that AAR, that, that coming judgment, I'll just be beaming, right? And knowing that, listen, I'm not justified by my works. I'm not justified by my obedience. I'm justified by the faith of Christ. But I want to, to when I meet my Savior face-to-face and say, man, do you remember all those memories, right? The loss being found, those moments where you showed up when, when our back was against the wall and, and, and just beaming, right, as a, a bubbling child to my Savior. Just so excited to see him. And what I, what I don't want to uh, be is in the parable of the talents is the one guy who, out of fear, just buried his talent and didn't do anything, right? And said, Jesus, look, I was out of fear. I just, I just played it safe. So one of my favorite stories in the gospel is uh, Peter. And everyone talked about Jesus walking on water, but there's another dude who walked on water as well. In that story. And Jesus, they're in a massive storm. Jesus, or Jesus is walking on water to the boat, and the disciples are freaking out. They're scared because they're like, whoa, what's going on here? And, uh, and uh, Peter gets out of the boat, right? And Jesus says, hey, come to me. Get out of the boat. And, and so, one, you're like, Jesus, okay, that's awesome. Peter walked on water. But what always gets me is that there were 11 other disciples who were safe and secure and dry on the boat and never experienced what it was like to step out in faith. Why did they stay in the boat? Because they were scared. They were scared. They didn't have their eyes fixed on Christ. They had their eyes fixed on, well, people don't, we can't do this, right? I, I don't want to risk it all. Like, I don't, what about my family? What about, you know, uh, my clothes getting wet? What about all this stuff? No, 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 no. Peter steps out in faith, and he was taken care of. He says, look, it's me. Don't be afraid. Believe. Have trust. Step out. Walk in the direction of Christ. And I'll conclude with Hebrews 12, 12, uh, 13, 12 through 14, and we'll conclude. We'll wrap up here. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Jesus left Jerusalem, the walls of the city, left what was comfortable, and he went outside the gate to listen to sanctify people through his own blood. That's the indicative, right? We, have been, we are the sanctified people because of what Jesus Christ had did. It wasn't required of him, but he took it upon himself to, 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 to give his life for me and for you, for our sins, okay? He goes, but listen, the text doesn't stop there, church. It doesn't stop there and say nothing's required of us. This is the rally of verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's an imperative there. This is what Christ has done. That when we look at Calvary and the cost that was paid on our behalf, we look at that and then we, we, we look at each other and we say, let us go. Isaiah 6 God says, God says, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And that's when we throw our hand up in the air and say, after that costly sacrifice on my behalf, an undeserved sinner shown that grace, Lord, send me. Let me follow in those, in those bloody footsteps to the, to, the, to, the, to the cross. Let me deny myself, take up that cross and follow you, Jesus, because that is where abundant life is found. Listen, when I finally realized in verse 14 that here we have no lasting city, This world is not our home. Stop hedging your bets on this side of eternity, church. Stop playing it safe. We have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come, and that changes everything. That is our retirement. That is our hope. That is our mansion on the corners of of Meadow Lane Park in Vienna, right? That is what is coming. And our mission right now is to not sit back safe and secure and say nothing's required of us. No, we're going to take the costly grace and go share that grace with everyone that will will, want to listen at great cost and risk to ourselves. Why? Because that's what Christ did to to us. And whatever Christ does for us and to us, he wants to do through us, church, to the world. So just as he went out and bore the reproach and shame for us, now let us go, church, 
There's the indicative, there's the imperative. Let us go for his glory and for the sake of those who don't know him. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for the, the grace, Lord, the grace, the grace that you have lavished upon us. Who are we? Who are we that you would give such a, 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 a high price for our ransom, the blood of your son, the death of your son? For people who often take that grace for granted. And Lord, I confess uh, uh, that, that first and foremost, Lord, that, that I have, have taken that grace lightly, that often I want the grace, but I don't want to follow you sometimes, Jesus, because it's, it's hard. And, and, and I'm taking a leap of faith here, not a big leap of faith, but, but assume that there's a lot of people in this room who are wrestling with the same thing. So Holy Spirit, would you come upon us in this moment where we're sitting right now, Lord, and, 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 and pry our clenched fists open of all the things that we're holding on to and refusing to give you access to. Maybe it's our wallets, maybe it's our families, maybe it's our future, maybe it's our safety. Lord, would you just pry those hands open now, Lord, and we would see you, Jesus, as better, as better than anything this world has to offer, that you are better. Therefore, there is no cost on this side of eternity that can even compare to what we gain in following in your footsteps. Jesus, may we see you as better and stop, stop living the fearful, timid life of staying in the boat. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, myself especially, that we would start stepping out in faith to you, Jesus. Grant us that grace. Grant us that repentance this morning. And so we thank you for your grace, Lord. And Spirit, come and equip us to do what you've called us to do. We pray this in your